historian, entrepreneur, and author Itai Tenenbaum is your guide for a behind-the-scenes tour of Israeli society and objective analysis of the key issues of the day for anyone who wants a deep and authentic look inside Israel. Welcome to the Inside Israel podcast. Drama and power struggle will take place in Israel in mid-November when a nine-people committee will decide on the appointment of four new Supreme Court justices. Gidon Saar, the Minister of Justice, announced that on October 24th, the subcommittee responsible for holding interviews for candidates wishing to serve in the Israel Supreme Court will convene. And then, one month later, on November 23rd, the Judicial Selection Committee will meet to decide on no less than four new Supreme Court justices. Unlike in America, no justices died as of lately. In Israel, justices of the Supreme Court resign at the age of 70. Two justices, Hanan Meltzer and Meni Mazuz, recently culminated their service on the bench. Two more justices, George Kara, an Arab Israeli, and Neil Hendel, will be done soon. The new four justices will be chosen out of a list of 24 candidates. Now, this is a huge deal in Israel on a couple of fronts. First, there's a constant struggle between the Knesset, i.e. the government, and between the Supreme Court. This is due to the fact that the court serves, among other roles, as the checks and balances to the Knesset, the Israeli parliament, of course. Now, I'll touch upon this a little later in the episode. But for now, let me just say that many Knesset members feel that the Supreme Court, 15 justices in total, now 13 since two retired five months ago, have way too much power, especially since they were not elected by the people as they, the members of Knesset, were. These Knesset members claim that 15 justices cannot be the sole checks and balances for elected representatives, which of course is themselves. The second front has to do with the fact that four justices, that's almost a third, are retiring in such a short time, which is of course a very large number. The politicians, right and left-leaning, see an opportunity to nominate someone of like mind to their political philosophy. Israel's Supreme Court is unique. The reason is because it wears two hats. The first is being the highest court of appeal in the state of Israel. In Israel, there are the three-court system. There is the Shalom Court, which is the magistrate, which deals with cases that are below 2.5 million shekels, which is a little under 800,000 American dollars, and up to seven years of a possible jail sentence. There's also the district court, which is called the Mechuzi. That deals with the above of 2.5 million shekels, and also above a seven-year jail sentence. And then, of course, the Supreme Court, which hears the appeals from the district court. Now realize, you have the right to appeal once. If you hear your case in the magistrate court, you can appeal to the district court only. And if you hear your case at the district court, you can appeal to the Supreme Court only. There have been exceptions, but that is the general rule. The second role of the Israeli Supreme Court is really what makes it unique. It is called Bagatz, or Bedin Gavoha Letzedek. And basically, it hears petitions against various governmental authorities. It hears petitions against the government. It hears petitions against the Knesset. It hears petitions of decisions and actions of authorities and of legislation. It hears petitions directed against judgments pronounced in the National Labor Court. And it hears petitions against rabbinical courts and other religious courts. Now, I'd like to expand on these petitions. In just a short while, I'm going to have Abraham Silver with me to discuss some of the petitions against the religious authorities in Israel. But first, it is important for me to explain that the Supreme Court of Israel is accessible. I have personally sued the state of Israel twice. Once, I sued the Minister of Education on behalf of my oldest daughter. And the second time, I sued the Ministry of Transportation on behalf of my tour business. Let me explain. When my daughter reached the seventh grade, 
she was accepted to a school of excellence. But in Israel, you must go to school within your jurisdiction. Now, our jurisdiction, our city hall, didn't have a school of excellence, and the mayor and the Ministry of Education would not let her transfer to the school of excellence. So I sued the Ministry of Education in the Supreme Court. It wasn't actually heard because the judges basically hinted, very strong hint, that the Ministry of Education will lose this case, and so they basically gave up on the appeal, and yes, my daughter was able to go to that school of excellence. Note that the process was actually quick because the school would start on the 1st of September, and we were suing in the summer, right before the 1st of September, so the court had to hear it pretty much right away. The second case has to do with importing a tour car from abroad to Israel. The dealers in Israel, which are pretty monopolized by a couple of wealthy families, did not want for people of the tourist industry to be able to import cars. They told that to the Ministry of Transportation, and the Ministry of Transportation agreed, the reason being that tour cars are not taxed in the same customs as other cars. Since no cars are made in Israel, all cars that are in Israel have taxes that are custom taxes that reach over 100%, sometimes even reaching 136%. Tour cars only have about 8 to 10% taxation. So the dealers claimed that the tour industry people will import these cars and then turn them and sell them for a large profit. Of course, that's not really possible, but somehow the Ministry of Transportation agreed with them. Look, I don't want to bore you with details, but when I go to a dealer and buy a tour car, I should not have to pay the customs. I should only pay about 10% customs. Guess what? Since the dealership are monopolized, they wanted to charge us almost 100% customs, even though it wasn't considered customs. They just said, that's our price. So we obviously sued the Ministry of Transportation saying, hey, let us import cars. And here's what's interesting. The trial took a while. It took five years. However, the judges right away said, what about if the tour industry people bring in cars that are not already imported? The judges further said that would not have any competition with the cars that you sell. The dealers had no choice and they agreed. And hence, we could already start importing cars not already imported in Israel. I, for one, have a Chevrolet Suburban. I imported it personally in order to use for the tourism industry. Five years later, the Supreme Court justices decided that the tour industry can bring in any cars that they'd like. The reason I told you about my two cases is just to really explain how accessible the Supreme Court is to Israelis. Now, my cases were minor cases and do not shape Israel or Israeli society. In order to go deeper, I invited Abraham Silver, a senior Israeli educator and lecturer at Hebrew University in Jerusalem. Welcome, Abraham. Uh, thanks for having me. Oh, it's always my pleasure. So, Abraham, the Supreme Court has made many thousands of decisions, and we can spend days talking about them. What I would like to do is concentrate on the Supreme Court's ruling on Jewish matters, specifically Jewish religious matters. In future episodes, we'll discuss many other matters. But for now, I want to understand a couple of things. Granted that the Jewish religious matters are a broad topic, let's first speak specifically about who is considered a Jew for the migration process to Israel. There was a famous case in the early 1960s involving a man known as Brother Daniel, a Catholic priest claiming he was Jewish and therefore should be allowed to migrate to Israel under the law of return. Abraham, tell us first what the law of return is. What does it say? So when the state was created, it was created as a Jewish state. And the concept was, what does Jewish mean? Jewish is Jewish nationality, according to the state. Anyone who was born Jewish is part of the Jewish nation, and therefore they have the right to live in the state of Israel and become a citizen of the state of Israel the day they move to Israel. That's the concept of the law of return. In fact, the first line of this basic law in Israel says every Jew has a right to come to this country as an ole, as an immigrant, and become a citizen that day. I have a great story, which is my wife 
moved to Israel on December 30th, and she immediately became Israeli. And on February 1st, she voted in the national elections. That's pretty amazing. Tell us specifically about Brother Daniel. What happened with him? So Brother Daniel was someone who was born Jewish, of a Jewish mother. His name was Oswald Refusen. He actually grew up Jewish, and he actually grew up in a Zionist youth movement. And then when the Holocaust happened, he was hidden in a Catholic monastery. When the Holocaust was over, he emerged from that monastery, had been living there with the priests, and he emerged as a Catholic priest, as a Carmelite Catholic priest. He eventually made his way to the Carmelite monastery in the Carmel Mountains outside of Kaifa. And he then turned around and said, you know, I'm Jewish. I was born of a Jewish mother. I want to move to Israel under the law of return. And the case came to the Supreme Court. What did the Supreme Court rule on that? Did they rule he was Jewish? Did they ask opinions? What did they do? Well, it was really difficult. Like, does he fit in or not fit in? In a sense, he fit in to the what the Knesset law had been, what the basic law was. And in fact, what they did was they turned to the rabbinical courts and they asked the rabbinical courts, what would you do? Now, the structure within Israel is that the rabbinical courts are actually subservient to the Supreme Court. The rabbinical court is actually a lower court. Supreme Court sits above them. And the rabbinical court looked at it only in a question of Jewish law, halakha. And in fact, if you're born of a Jewish mother, you're always Jewish. And they said, well, he's actually Jewish. The Supreme Court then turned around in a 4-1 decision, decided that they will reject the advice of the rabbinical court and that for the purposes of the state of Israel, he is not Jewish because in his own self-identity politics, he identifies as a Catholic priest or Catholic monk. And therefore, what he's done is rejected the Jewish people. But I also understand the Supreme Court had an issue with the word Jewish. In other words, I think that they turned it back to the parliament and said, hey, what do you mean when you say Jewish? It's kind of vague. The issue was, in fact, that law was too vague. The law had stated the purpose of this law, Jew means a person who was born of a Jewish mother. That was the definition of Jewish at the time, or has been converted, whatever that actually means. And that was vague as well. And so they turned it back to the parliament and said, okay, look, we rejected Brother Daniel, but you've got to fix this law. And the Knesset then went and amended the law to say, um, again, person who's born of a Jewish mother or has become converted to Judaism and who is not of another religion. And they added that not of another religion because of the Brother Daniel. Case. Brother Daniel, by the way, went on to actually live a full life in Israel and actually eventually became Israeli under regular immigration laws, as opposed to the law of return. And then the law of return also expanded, I think, also on someone who's married to a Jew. So if a Jew wanted to make Aliyah, wanted to immigrate to Israel and they were married to a non-Jew, they weren't going to say to them, all right, you got to get divorced or something, of course, that someone was married to a Jew. And they even mentioned the fact that a person that had one grandparent that was Jewish could make Aliyah according to the law of return. All of those are the laws of actually either family reunification or the law of return. And in fact, what you're saying is absolutely right. It doesn't mean that they're Jewish. It means they have a right to immigrate to Israel because they're married to someone Jewish or because they have one grandparent who is Jewish. That is directly from the Holocaust. The definition of Jewish by the Nazis was if you have one grandparent who is Jewish, whatever side of the family that is. And basically the state of Israel responded to the Nazism by saying, if the Nazis would have killed you for being Jewish, the state of Israel decided they were going to save you. And therefore, if you have one Jewish grandparent, you can move to Israel. Doesn't mean that you're Jewish. What that means is that you can move to Israel even under the law of return or family unification, and you're not Jewish. Where does that leave you in terms of a state that doesn't have civil marriage? And in fact, that's a real issue including two things. One is people who've moved to Israel, and the other is it says all converted, but it doesn't define conversion in that Knesset law. 
Well, what if you're converted? What does conversion mean, especially in a state that has an orthodox establishment? Let me tag on that and ask you the following. Due to the political system in Israel and due to the power that orthodox Jewish parties have, the issue of conversion, as you mentioned, is monopolized by the orthodox establishment in Israel. However, lately the Supreme Court has intervened and made some bold decisions. They basically started accepting conversions not conducted by the orthodox establishment. Now, if we rewind a little bit, there was a famous case of a woman named Shoshana Miller. Can you tell us about that case? Yeah. The thing about Shoshana Miller is that it's not really Knesset laws. In other words, we're not talking about a basic law anymore. We're talking about Israeli politics. The Ministry of Interior became controlled by the ultra-Orthodox establishment. And Shoshana Miller was uh, converted to Judaism by a reform rabbi in the United States. And she said, I can move to Israel. Look at that law of return. It says converted. It doesn't say how you were converted. And the Interior Ministries refused to accept it because it was run by the ultra-Orthodox establishment. And in 1988, the Supreme Court ruled that any conversion made by any recognized Jewish community abroad would be recognized in Israel for the purposes of immigration. And she was able to obtain Israeli citizenship under the law of return. Now, that meant that if you were reform or conservative or whatever stream of Judaism, if you were converted abroad, you would be Israeli under the law of return. However, it's a problem in Israel because it doesn't mean that the state will recognize you for the purposes of marriage and divorce. Which are both run by the Orthodox establishment. Let's just clear that up. Yeah, exactly. So there's another famous case with uh, a woman named Martina Rechkova. When she sued the state of Israel regarding her conversion, can you tell us about that a little bit? That was in 2005, I believe. Yeah, so that so now Shoshana Miller proved that you can convert abroad and become Jewish uh, and, and move to Israel in the law of return. What if you were one of those people that were in that family reunification thing that we talked about? What if you had come to Israel and you weren't Jewish and now you wanted to be Jewish and you didn't really want to go through an ultra-Orthodox conversion? And in fact, what happened in that case in 2005 is that a woman here in Israel moved abroad and converted abroad, but she was already Israeli. Now she wanted her conversion recognized by the state of Israel. And in fact, the Supreme Court again agreed that the conversion was done abroad. She would actually re-enter Israel now under the law of return and have to be recognized by the state of Israel as Jewish. I think they even called that the jumping conversion, as in you can go out abroad, convert, and then come back and you're recognized as converted, right? Exactly, exactly. They called it the jumping conversion. So the Supreme Court has been very proactive in defining Jewish because of the law of return's vagueness. And there was also a, a, another case just recently, actually, called the Dahan case. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, so that's actually right now, I mean, in the 2000s. And the Dahan case is, in fact, wait a minute, what did I need to go abroad to convert for? Can't I convert with a reformer, conservative rabbi here in Israel who isn't really recognized by the establishment? Remember, it's an orthodox establishment. And in fact, once again, the Supreme Court said, yeah, you don't even need to jump abroad. You can actually be converted by a conservative reform rabbi in Israel and still be Jewish. Again, problem is marriage and divorce and the institutions that the Orthodox establishment have. And that's why there's a push for civil marriage today. But in terms of being Jewish, the state recognizes you as Jewish, even if you're now converted within Israel in the pluralistic or conservative reform movement. Okay, Abraham, last thing. In 2016, there was a further advance in the idea of conversions. Tell us about that. Yeah, so that in itself is fascinating. In order to be converted, we just said that you could get converted in Israel, in the Dahan case. But 
How do you get converted? One of the mechanisms that you go through in being converted is that you have to immerse yourself in a mikvah, a ritual bath. But all the mikvot in Israel are controlled by the Orthodox establishment. So basically, the Supreme Court had ruled that you could convert in Israel, but you physically couldn't do it. I mean, you couldn't physically couldn't get to a ritual bath. And in 2016, the Supreme Court said every citizen has a right to go to the ritual bath, and the Orthodox establishment cannot prevent a conservative or reform rabbi from converting someone using a ritual bath, which is owned by the Orthodox establishment, because it's actually owned by the state. And it further along this whole concept of being able to convert pluralistically um, or non-Orthodox in Israel. Give us final thoughts about what you think about the Supreme Court's involvement and the idea of conversions. I think that it's interesting, which is how much is the Supreme Court proactive in understanding this particular issue of Israeli society? What's interesting is, is that on the one hand, Supreme Court is being very proactive. On the other hand, the Supreme Court is actually just addressing the needs of people on the ground. And the Knesset, in a sense, has failed to address those needs by formalizing any of these issues, by continuing to amend the basic law as these issues come up leaving the Supreme Court no choice but to be proactive in that way. And the other thing to say is, is that given that original law of return, the pushback the Supreme Court has been doing today has been against the politics of Israel rather than against the law. They've done everything according to the basic law, but they're pushing back against the immediate the immediacy of politics in Israel, that ultra-Orthodox hegemony that exists in the country. Abraham, thank you so much for interviewing. Thanks so much for enlightening us. Thank you so much for having me. Um, it was a pleasure to be here. The issues of who is a Jew, as well as conversions, will continue to make headlines in Israel, both in the political arena and in the judicial arena. Many more matters, as I said in the beginning, will be discussed in future episodes. Matters dealing with the tense relationship between the Knesset and the Supreme Court, dealing with human rights and security, dealing with basic law destined to be future Israeli constitution, and whether the Supreme Court has the authority to rule on them, and much more. For these reasons, in mid-November 2021, the Nine People Committee, made up of four politicians, three Supreme Court justices, and two representatives from the Bar Association, will play a tug-of-war attempting to select the new four justices that fit their political and judicial philosophy. Stay tuned. If you like the Inside Israel podcast, please share. If you are listening via the Apple app, please rank us as a five. You can access all of our episodes on Apple, Spotify, Google, and Amazon podcasts, and on InsideIsrael.fm. 